Last time we spoke about the battle for Henderson Field. In a truly terrible case of deja vu, the Japanese attacked the American perimeter on Guadalcanal and they paid dearly for it. General Hayakatake alongside his commanders formed an overly complicated plan to have the men go into the jungles again to hit the marines and like a cruel joke, many got lost and the operation fell into chaos. The right wing never joined the action because of a fictitious enemy. The left wing was met with pure carnage and the reserves joined them. Over at the Horseshoe defensive perimeter, the forces of Sumiyoshi initially were doing great, but Oka and Nakagumi received communications in piecemeals and their attacks suffered immensely. Nearly 2,000 Japanese died at the cost of around 100 Americans. The Japanese yet again failed to seize Henderson Field and would have to limp back to their camp. Yet the action was nowhere near done on Starvation Island. This episode is the Battle of Santa Cruz Island. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And don't forget our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest. The Fall and Rise of China podcast, narrated and written by me. And if after all that, you are somehow still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Now before we can talk about what is one of the great naval battles of the Pacific War, I would first like to talk about a lesser known event. If you remember, quite a while back, during the attack on Milne Bay, a certain group of Japanese had a picnic on Good Enough Island and wound up getting stranded. Yes, Commander Tsukoka Toreshigi, alongside 353 SNLF Marines, were stranded on Good Enough Island after nine Kitty Warhawks swooped down and destroyed all seven of their barges, along with their radios and other vital equipment. This occurred on August the 25th. And it would not be until September the 2nd, when the castaways managed to finally find a canoe and were able to send three messengers paddling back to Buna to beg for some help. The paddlers reached Buna a week later, practically dead, having nothing to eat but coconut milk for eight days. They were the first to give any information about the fate of the Tsukoika unit, and the IGN rapidly sent two destroyers, the Yayoi and Izokaze, to rescue the poor men. However, the destroyers were intercepted by some B-17s and B-25s. Yayoi suffered severe damage and sank, killing almost all of her crew. The Izokaze managed to evade the bombers but was forced to return. The Izokaze even tried to find the Yayoi to save her crew, but she failed to find anything, only found some oil slick in the water. To the IGN, it now seemed they had to rescue the men on Good Enough Island and the Yayoi. A message was airdropped to the men on Good Enough Island on the 10th of September, letting them know that help was on the way and it should arrive the next day. Another message fell on the 12th, including some food supplies, but it told them the rescue mission had to be postponed. Rear Admiral Matsuyama led a rescue mission aboard the Tenru, 
joined by the Hamakaze on the 13th to find the Yayoi and the Tsukoikimen. The two ships found no trace of the Yayoi, but they did find allied aircraft who attacked them, and thus they were forced to turn back to Rabaul. Now the IGN realized that there was no way to perform a rescue mission without air cover. On the 22nd, the Izokaze and the Mochizuki set out and found 10 survivors of the Yayoi on New Britain. The survivors told them that 87 more survivors had drifted to the coast of Normanby Island, and the two ships made haste to the island, but they found no one there. In the meantime, further supplies were dropped on Goodenough Island. A Japanese reconnaissance plane passed by Normanby Island and saw 10 survivors from the Yayoi, who would be evacuated later on on the 26th, the last to ever be found from the Ayoi. Rescuing the men on Goodenough Island proved to be difficult, as the Allies were well aware of the stranded Japanese, and they began to make daily attacks on all the rescue attempts. Worse for the men on Goodenough Island was that their food supplies were dangerously low, and malaria was taking a toll on the men. The IGN decided to send submarines to rescue Tsukoika and his men, and on October the 3rd, a submarine arrived with rations, ammunition, a wireless radio, and a barge. Within the submarine, 50 men were able to be brought aboard, so they took the sickest ones of the bunch. The submarine came back 10 days later, this time bringing medical supplies and more rations, but the enemy aircraft showed up, firing flares, forcing the sub to make an emergency dive, and they never came back. A second craft was left behind, and on the 15th, Tsukoika's men got word on the radio that the rescue had been postponed for the time being, and that they should conceal their barges as best as they could. On the other side of all of this, 300 Australian troops landed on nearby Mud Bay on the night of October the 22nd. They marched towards the Japanese camp at the Kilia Mission, expecting to find nearly dead men there, but instead they found well-fed and well-positioned Japanese using a knoll as a defensive perimeter. The Japanese were expecting an attack, and they provided the invaders with a heavy dose of sniper fire and grenades. An Australian motor crew was ambushed en route to the Kilia mission and forced to retreat, abandoning most of their ammunition. The invaders had to pull back for a night, and they tried to attack the next day, only to be met with even more sniper fire. The Australians then tried to flank the Japanese, but they found the jungle impenetrable. Aerial attacks on the Japanese position arrived the next day's afternoon, but by that time, the Japanese had managed to escape. Tsukoika's men had gone to the nearby Ferguson Island using the barge on the night of the 24th, and two days after, the destroyer Tenru rescued them. It had been two terrible months since the ill-fated picnic on Goodenough Island, and during the entire ordeal, the situations on Green Hell and Starvation Island had deteriorated considerably. Talk about one poor decision leading to two months of headaches. And now we can turn back to the Solomon Islands. The major portion of the IGN's combined fleet had maneuvered north of the Solomon Islands since October the 11th. Admiral Yamamoto was exercising his command aboard the Yamato, anchored at Truk, while Admiral Kondo was commanding the forces at sea, collectively now labeled the Support Force. Carrier Divisions 1 and 2, composed of four heavy and one light carrier, formed the nucleus of the IGN naval might. As of August, the Support Force held two major commands, the main body, and the advance force. The advance force was under Kondo's direct control, and it included two battleships, four heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, a dozen destroyers, and Carrier Division 2, the Junyo and Hiyo. About 100 miles east of Carrier Division 2 was Admiral Nagumo's Carrier Division 1, the Shokaku and Zoikaku, alongside light carrier Zuyo. 
Nagumo's escort was one heavy cruiser and eight destroyers. Operating around 100 miles south of Nagumo was the Vanguard Force, consisting of two battleships, three heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, and seven destroyers led by Rear Admiral Hirokai Abe. The purpose of the South Vanguard was to meet any American carrier's forces' attacks. Admiral Mikawa's Outer South Seas Force of three heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, and 16 destroyers augmented Kondo's force significantly alongside the Advanced Expeditionary Force which held 16 submarines in the South Pacific. Kondo's support force in the previous episode made a high-speed run to the south and arrived on X-Day in an attempt to apprehend and destroy any American vessels attempting to intervene with Hayakotake's attack on Henderson Field. If the circumstance allowed for it, the advance force would make a foray south of Guadalcanal, but in the meantime the IGN would help clear a path for the reinforcement convoy and allow Congo and Haruna to bombard Henderson Field into rubble. After the bombardment on October the 13th and 14th, the support force sailed south to offer a challenge for a fleet engagement. Yet with only the USS Hornet available, the Americans declined to spar with the IGN. And who could blame them? Instead, the U.S. Navy sparred with their adversary from a distance, using the reconnaissance planes wisely. The IGN had learnt through radio intelligence of a powerful unit cruising south of the Solomons. It was the Hornet group. However, the IGN combined staff did not know the composition of this group, and there seemed to be an American naval force near Rennell Island as well. To the IGN, it seemed to be a bait to tempt their carriers to go after the Hornet, while the Rennell force attacked their exposed flanks. The IGN then discovered another major force was sailing out of Pearl Harbor on October the 15th. This was the USS Enterprise and her escorts. The IGN estimated the task force was heading for the South Pacific. The Japanese figured this out because Nimitz had sent a feint, the destroyers Lamson and Mahan, to raid a picket boat line off the Gilbert Islands. The feint was too obvious, and alongside this, the U.S. had sent a large number of submarines to the Solomons, indicating some large action was soon to take place there. Kondo's support force had two major concerns. The first was fuel. Kondo's task was to cover both the reinforcement convoy and then one week later, the land assault. Colonel Tsuiji had been warned in late September that the support force could only remain at sea for about two weeks because of the fuel limitations. Even the two weeks would strain the IGN's meager fuel supplies, and they had to siphon fuel from the Yamato and Mitsu at truck into tanks and make sea transfers. The second concern was the lack of progress, specifically that of the 17th Army. It took repeated prodding to have X-Day set for October the 22nd, in the meantime, the carrier Hiyo suffered a fire in her engines, forcing her return to truck with two destroyer escorts on October the 21st. One of the many struggles of being out at sea for long periods of time on low fuel. Rear Admiral Kakuji Kakuta shifted his flag to the Junyo, while Hiyo's aircraft complement of 16 Zeros, 17 Vals all joined the 11th Air Fleet, and three of her Zeros, one Val, and five Kates joined the Junyo. When the 17th Army asked to postpone X-Day to the 24th, the IGN were outraged. Then on top of this, at 2 p.m. on October the 14th, the USS Enterprise had rendezvoused with Hornet. Task Force 17, built around Hornet, was commanded by Rear Admiral George Murray. Task Force 16, built around Enterprise with the escort Battleship South Dakota, one heavy cruiser, one light cruiser, and eight destroyers, was commanded by Rear Admiral Thomas Kincaid. 
and he would be in charge of the tactical command of both carrier groups now forming Task Force 61. The unit around Rennell Island was Task Force 64, commanded by Rear Admiral Willis Lee, consisting of battleship Washington, one heavy and two light cruisers, and six destroyers. Because of the IGN radio traffic, Kincaid had a fairly good picture of their strength in the region. On October the 19th, the radio traffic suggested the IGN were in the process of adjustment and the preparation for a major action. Halsey elected to seize the initiative, and he issued an order to Kincaid, stating, Make a sweep around North Santa Cruz Islands, thence southwesterly east of San Cristobal, to the area in the Coral Sea, in position to intercept enemy forces approaching Cactus Ringbolt. Cactus Ringbolt, by the way, is referring to Guadalcanal and Tulagi. Now, when the 17th Army delayed X Day to the 24th, this really messed up the balance of sea power. It also bred a lot of dissension within the IGN. During October the 23rd, the first delayed day, the support force was moving south to gain its pre-designated positions by dawn for X Day plus one. Countless PBYs surveyed the support force before Kondo and Nagumo reverse course, having learnt that the 17th Army had yet again delayed their attack. The support force had to refuel again on the 24th and Nagumo's staff began mewling over the probability that retracing the path taken on the 23rd would virtually guarantee their early discovery this time around. The staff concluded that Carrier Division 1 should try to creep northeast around the American search net, but this basically meant they would be one day late in reaching the pre-designated point for the next X day. This proposal prompted an uproar from the Combined Fleet HQ because, in the words of Admiral Ugaki, it would, quote, Both sunder the planned reconnaissance coverage to the southeast, the critical direction, and leave the advance force with only Junio beyond mutual support of Carrier Division 1. On the night of October the 24th, as the Sendai Division was about to impale itself upon the American firepower, the support force sped south yet again. Dawn's search reconnaissance planes detected no enemy fleet, but PBYs could be seen in the distance, alongside some American radio traffic, indicating the advance force and vanguard force were probably discovered. Soon, six B-17s showed up, dribbling some bombs across the vanguard force at 2.50pm, missing as usual. Then, a crumb of intelligence reached the support force, from the 11th Air Fleet. They had sighted the Rennell Island force. Kondo ordered Nagumo to attack the Rennell force, but the Americans were out of range. Admiral Kincaid learned at noon that two Japanese carriers were on the southeasterly course, 355 miles northwest from Task Force 61, and aligned his prows to bear upon the enemy. Reconnaissance planes were not finding anything, so Kincaid launched from Enterprise a dozen Dauntless to ferret out at 2.30, and in a rather bold gambit, sent out at 3.20pm 8 Wildcats, 5 Dauntless, and 7 Avengers to try and exploit first contacts. Shortly after two waves left the horizon, the Admiral learned that the enemy had turned north, but because of the necessity to have radio silence, he could not tell his flyers this. The reconnaissance planes all returned having found nothing, but the attack planes, in their zeal to find the enemy, flew far beyond their orders and daylight. The night claimed two lives, and water landings resulted in eight lost aircraft. On top of this, one Wildcat and three bombers crashed on an aircraft carrier's deck, making a total loss of 12 much-needed aircraft. Kondo held significant superiority in aircraft on October the 26th, 
They had around 233 aircraft in all, while the Americans had just 163. Besides the numerical superiority, the Japanese also enjoyed a distinct qualitative advantage. Much of Enterprise's pilots had only been trained for about three months, and the Hornet had some greens as well. The Japanese airgroups, on the other hand, contained the remaining core of the superbly trained and battle-hardened veterans all the way back from Pearl Harbor and the other grand victories of the early months of the Pacific War. At 10.18pm, as American destroyers were pulling men out of the water from their water landings, Admiral Yamamoto signaled this. There is a great likelihood that the enemy fleet will appear in the area northeast of the Solomons, and the combined fleet will seek to destroy it on the 26th. Admiral Yugaki could not resist tossing some search planes to find the enemy, and at 10.40pm on October the 25th, he ordered them to quote, to persist in search and tracking regardless of weather and enemy planes. None of the Japanese search planes, however, would begin their work until dawn, while the American counterparts were active at night using their radar antennas. By 11.30pm on October the 25th, Nagumo and his staff knew that the American aircraft were in the vicinity, but could not figure out whether they were shadowing Carrier Division 1 or the Vanguard force about 60 miles south of them. Then the destroyer Izokaze in the Vanguard force dodged a torpedo dropped by a PBY at 12.33am, and this brought some hope that the Americans did not know yet where Carrier Division 1 was. But, by 2.50am, a PBY showed up and attempted to drop four bombs over Zoikaku. The bombs missed, but now Nagumo's staff feared their rendezvous point was a trap, and they urgently wanted to change course. At 3.30am, Nagumo ordered a change of course, going north, and 45 minutes later, the Vanguard force did the same. Both sides readied their search planes for first light, but it was the Japanese who launched first. Seven float planes from the Vanguard force departed at 4.15am followed by 13 Kates from Nagumo's carriers at 4.45 a.m. Kondo learnt of the terrible news about the Sendai Division, and he decided to reverse course to the north to await further developments. At 5 a.m., Kondo launched some float planes to help search for the enemy vessels. 30 minutes before sunrise, Enterprise launched its Wildcat Cap and eight pairs of Dauntless to cover some area just due north. Then at 5.12 a.m., Enterprise radio men received word from a PBY about seeing some Kates around 85 miles away from the task force. Then at 6.30 a.m., a PBY reported the Vanguard force was bearing 275 degrees from Enterprise at around 170 miles away. Then at 6.50 a.m., Lieutenant Commander James Lee came upon Nagumo's carriers. Before Lee commenced an attack, he reported the contact to his squadron. Yet, as Lee was about to attack, he wrenched straight into a cap of over 20 zeros, which forced him to peel off. Two other Dauntless showed up, reacting to Lee's report, and they began to tussle with the zero cap. Then another pair of Dauntless showed up, one flown by Lieutenant Stockton Strong and Ensign C.B. Irving. The two Dauntless snuck around, unnoticed by the cap, and they made dives at Zoyo at 7.40 a.m., Captain CEO Obayashi of Zoyo reported that a 500-pound bomb had struck his shift aft, creating a 50-foot crater in his flight deck, blasting the decks below it, destroying some anti-aircraft guns and three Zeros. Zoyo's fire teams rushed to put out the fires, but Zoyo was now unable to launch or recover aircraft, so she had to withdraw and she took two escorts with her. Another pair of Donlas showed up attacking the Tone, but were met with no success. 
Overall, the piecemeal Dauntless attacks managed to get a single hit on a light carrier and took down a single zero. Shokaku's search plane number 4 managed to find an American carrier group at 6.12am, just 200 miles southeast of Carrier Division 1. Yet the airmen, instead of reporting it in immediately, decided to further inspect the enemy formation, and it would only be at 6.58am when the Shokaku received the report. The Japanese were having immense trouble with their communication this morning. An error in the report indicated the message from Shokaku's plane number 4 was actually from plane number 1, and this led the staff on Shokaku to question the reliability of the report. The idea being perhaps the Americans were messing with the radios. On top of this, the Zoikaku was also having radio difficulties, and their search planes were unable to reveal that they had also located the enemy task force. Overall, the Japanese were still haunted by the Battle of Midway, and to a lesser extent, the Battle of the Eastern Solomons. They were now obsessed with being the first to strike a blow when it came to carrier battles. So when plane number four made its report, they eventually just went along with it, even if it was some kind of trick. Shortly after 7 a.m., Kondo detached cruisers Miyoko and Maya with destroyers Kagero and Miyakanami to recover search planes while he turned the rest of the advance force on a course 70 degrees. At 7.25 a.m., Lieutenant Commander Shigeharu Murata, the strike group leader of Shokaku, directed a 62-plane strike in the direction of the contact report. 20 Kates, 21 Vals, and 22 Zeros were en route to the enemy, and Nagumo was confident the strike group would inflict heavy damage upon the enemy carriers. So at 8.05 a.m., he ordered for a course change to head directly for the enemy position. As soon as the first wave had lifted off, the second wave was being prepared. But a problem arose. During the night, the threat posed by the PBYs led the carrier crews to disarm many aircraft parked on the hangar decks, and now they were busy re-outfitting everything. Now they had ironically a similar cataclysm to what occurred at Midway. The crews had completed the resetting of the Val bombs, but it would take another 30 minutes before they could get the torpedoes on the Cates. The choice for the force was between speed and coordination. The force chose speed. At 8.10 a.m., Shokaku's Vals launched, led by Lieutenant Commander Mamoru Seki, with five zeros as escort. Half an hour later, Lieutenant Jichiro Imajuki got 16 kates and four zeros to leave Zoikaku. Thus, by 9.10 a.m., the Japanese had 110 planes in three organized strike groups en route to the general area of the American carriers. In contrast, the Americans were quite late to the action, and they held inferior numbers, organization, and coordination. Hornet began to launch aircraft at 7.32 a.m., led by Lieutenant Commander W.J. Wilhelm, 15 Dauntless carrying 1,000-pound bombs, 4 Wildcats, and 6 Avengers. All of the aircraft departed at 7.50 a.m., around 25 minutes after the first Japanese strike group. Enterprise, meanwhile, had 20 of her Dauntless on search missions and could only mount a strike of 8 Wildcats, 3 Dauntless, and 8 Avengers. These planes lifted off at 7.47 a.m. and split into two groups. Hornet launched a second wave of seven Wildcats, nine Dauntless, and nine Avengers at 8.10 a.m., but the Avengers were armed with 500-pound bombs rather than torpedoes, which is probably a great idea since those torpedoes were most likely duds. Yes, the Mark 15 torpedo issue in the United States Navy was still running rampant. The Americans soon had around 75 aircraft in the air with three groups going to hunt down the enemy. 
At 8.40 a.m., nine of Zoiho's Zeros ran into Enterprise's group and plunged out of the sun upon them. The Zeros tore into the Avenger formation, and Lieutenant Commander John Collette's Avenger, quote, pitched downward with flames gushing from the engine into the cockpit, as did another Avenger. Two Avengers went straight into the sea, with the two crew becoming POWs later on, and two other Avengers were so badly damaged they had to turn back. The Zeros also shot down three Wildcats, producing more future POWs. The Zeros had expelled all of their ammunition and they had to return, leaving the first strike group with only 12 Zeros left. Hornet's air crew notified the task force of the incoming Japanese aircraft shortly before they began to appear on radar just 60 miles into the distance. Hornet refueled seven Wildcats, launching them to join the eight Wildcat cap. The first wave saw Hornet at 8.55 a.m., but they did not see Enterprise because she was hidden behind a rain squall just 10 miles northeast of Hornet. The 37 airborne Wildcats from both carriers went out to intercept the enemy wave at 8.55 a.m. around 25 miles away from the task force. Hornet swung northeast at 9 a.m. going 31 knots as her escort force tightened into a 2,000-yard ring. The men aboard the escort ships could only see smoky plums 15 miles to the west indicating the aircraft were tussling. Then the valves began to emerge and over 25 dive bombers were in whaling dives by 9.10 a.m. Captain Mason pivoted Hornet wildly as the first two of the chain of bombs smashed into the sea just abreast of his bridge. Then at 9.12 a.m., a bomb punctured her flight deck abreast of the bridge, drilling down all the way to the third deck. Mere moments later, two more bombs pierced the flight deck between the midship and the after elevators. One opened a blackened grotto on the third deck while the other ripped a 7x11 foot hole in the flight deck, killing countless men. At 9.14, a Val dove vertically right into the ship, smashing through the signal enclosure where, quote, It strewed the signal bridge with a blanket of burning gasoline. The remains of the Val and its 500-pound bomb halted at the gallery deck, igniting an intense fire. Many of the Cates were dropping bombs to the Hornet's port and starboard, boxing her in. The torpedo planes entered weaving glides at 6,000 feet and released around 400 to 500 feet away. According to Hornet's air officer, the Cates, quote, were well spaced in azimuth and the timing was superb. At 9.15, two torpedoes struck Hornet on her starboard side. The first smashed dead center on her forward engine room, ripping a four-foot hole, causing oil to spill out. The second went into her starboard quarter. Another Val, after releasing its bombs, lunged down and crashed right into Hornet's port forward gun gallery, killing two men and causing more fires. The end of the attack came at 9.25 a.m., with Hornet coming to a halt and listing 8 degrees starboard ablaze. The cost of this came at 38 of the 50 aircraft that had participated in the attack. Five zeros, 17 Vals, and 16 Kates. Hornet suffered tremendous punishment but her attack waves continued their hunt. At 8.55 a.m., Hornet's first wave came across Abe's vanguard force, and Shokaku's radar detected them when they were just 100 miles out. 14 zeros of the 26 cap were directed to intercept. Two Wildcats were shot down, but the Japanese pilots were confronted with well-coordinated Dauntless fire, taking a few of them down. 
The surviving 11 Dauntless of the Strike Force began to see the Japanese carriers on the horizon at 9.15 a.m. At 9.27 a.m., Lieutenant James Voss led the Dauntless to plunge at the enemy. At 600 to 900 feet, they dived upon Shokaku, which frantically sprayed them with anti-aircraft fire. Voss claims they got four direct hits on the Shokaku. The bombs raked Shokaku from its midship elevator aft, leaving her flight deck looking like an alpine landscape. Her middle section of the hangar deck was unserviceable. She could no longer conduct flight operations. Yet thanks to the bitter lessons of Midway, better fire teams and better hoses were at work this day, and all the fires were extinguished by 2.30pm. Six Hornet-based torpedo planes led by Lieutenant Parker lagged behind the first attackers and never sighted the Japanese carriers. Thus, they set upon hitting the Tone, but they failed to make any hits, and two aircraft were forced to ditch at sea, with another being shot down by a Zero. Enterprise First small group failed to find the enemy carriers as well. Some of the Avengers launched torpedoes at the Sasuya, failing to hit her, while other Dauntless attacked an unidentified heavy cruiser, failing to hit it as well. Hornet's second wave found Abe's vanguard force, but saw no carriers. In a rare occurrence, Japanese radio deception led the wave to believe that there were no carriers nearby, and thus they settled for attacking what was present. They struck at the Chikuma. Two Dauntless hit her with bombs smashing the cruiser's bridge, killing most of the men on the station, and nine Avengers added one torpedo hit on a torpedo tube mount and near-miss bashing into her hull, surging water into her boiler rooms. Chikuma's casualties were quite high, 192 killed and 95 wounded. Her bloodied captain found she could still pull about 23 knots, and he directed her all the way back to truck with some destroyer escorts, the Tanakaze and Urakaze. Five Avengers had to ditch at sea, but they were later rescued by American task forces. At 10 a.m., the second strike from Carrier Division 1 was inbound, hunting for the Enterprise. They had found Hornet, which appeared to be dead in the water, and they pressed on to find the other carrier. Meanwhile, the cap of 21 Wildcats over Task Force 16 tried to intercept, but they had no information on the enemy's altitude and they showed up far too low to break up the attack. They did manage to take out two vowels before the Japanese strike force closed in on the Enterprise. Enterprise, like Hornet, had a ring formation defense, including the newer battleship South Dakota, which held 16 brand new Beaufort's 40mm anti-aircraft machine guns, whose incredible effectiveness was about to be demonstrated. The valves were well into their dives when at 10.15am, anti-aircraft fire smashed into the aircraft. At 10.17, a bomb smashed through some parted wood planking with some thin steel at Enterprise's port forward overhang flight deck and simply went through exploding in the water. Fragments hit the hull, killing a man and wounding others, and the blast jarred the ship, but no significant damage was met. Then a second bomb struck the flight deck just aft of the forward elevator, exploding on the hangar deck, destroying five parked planes and fatally injuring 40 men. Of the 19 VALs in the attack group, 10 including Lieutenant Commander Seiki were shot down, and two more had to ditch at sea. 20 minutes after Shokaku's VALs finished their attack, Enterprise's radar indicated the approach of another strike group. It was Zoikaku's 16 Kates. The Cades managed to avoid visual detection within 5 miles of Enterprise, when they were pounced upon by Wildcats. Many were cast aflame from machine gun fire, and one exploded in midair. At 10.48, one of the flaming Cades crashed into the destroyer Smith's number 1 5-inch gun mount, sparking a large fire. Eventually, this fire caused an explosion, and over 57 casualties would occur. The rest of the Cades closed in on Smith's starboard bow, losing many of their number to anti-aircraft fire 
but five managed to make drops. Captain Hardison managed to evade them all, while all but one were shot down by anti-aircraft fire. Nine Kates added to a total loss of 24 aircraft from 45 that made up the second wave. A third group of aircraft were detected on American radars. This was the first raid of the Junyo Air Group led by Lieutenant Yoshio Shiga, consisting of 17 vowels and 12 zeros. The group had been up since 9.14am and they were low on fuel. They found the stationary Hornet, but also decided to press on to find the Enterprise, which Shiga found very quickly. At 11.21, the Vals initiated their dives, but the American task force was entering the fringe of a rain squall, creating a curious tactical situation. The American gunners could not see the Japanese, but the clouds forced the Japanese to make shallow gliding approaches to keep their targets in sight. Nonetheless, the anti-aircraft gunners coped with their handicap, dropping several Vals into the sea around Enterprise. As the Enterprise turned hard to port, one valve bomb skimmed off her exposed hull below the waterline exploding 8 feet from the starboard side. The ship shook severely, with two voids being opened to the sea. Some of the Japanese planes tried to bomb other vessels like the San Juan, which received a few near misses. Then at 11.28, a bomb hit her hull, 3 feet above the waterline, punching into the ship and exploding beneath her rudder. Her rudder jammed full right, and she began to take on water. Meanwhile, the South Dakota remained unbloodied while claiming to have shot down 26 enemy aircraft. One Kate attempted a run at her, narrowly missing the battleship. Then at 11.29, several of Junio's valves popped out from some low clouds onto South Dakota's port bow. One hit her number one main battery turret with a 550-pound bomb. The thick armor hide of the turret saved all the men inside it, but the fragments would later claim two lives. A sliver of steel also caught Captain Gatch right in the throat as he stood exposed outside the armored coning tower, leading the South Dakota careening out of control for over a minute. Eleven of the 17 vowels from Junio failed to find a Japanese flight deck to land upon. All 12 zeros did return, however. The returning aircraft reported three hits on a carrier, plus some damage to two cruisers. Admiral Kondo directed Abe to take the Vanguard force and to join him in a quest to hunt down the Americans at gun range. At 10.18am, Kondo made a signal announcing his intentions to attack the enemy with his surface ships, detaching Junyo and two destroyers away over to Nagumo. Nagumo received word of the hunt, and he had a problem. Bomb damage rendered the Shokaku incapable of flight operations, and it was his flag. Thus, he needed to move aboard the Zoikaku to exercise effective command. Captain Arima of Shokaku, with tears in his eyes, proposed positioning the Shokaku around the vicinity of Zoikaku to help absorb further American attacks. But Nagumo insisted the Shokaku must be preserved for future battles, and thus it was detached for a northwestern course alongside the Zoiho. Nagumo got aboard a destroyer, but it would take him nearly a full day to get over to the Zoikaku. At 12.40, the 4th Fleet Communications Unit reported that an enemy carrier lay dead in the water at 8 degrees south, 160 degrees east, i.e. it was the Hornet. Ten minutes later, Kakuda turned the Junyo 110 degrees and began launching a second strike group of Kates and Zeros to hunt down the wounded Enterprise, while Zoikaku had been closing in on an American position preparing its own attack. Meanwhile, Kincaid was setting to withdraw from the action, trying to preserve the Enterprise. The focus of the rest of the day's actions became efforts to save Hornet or to scuttle her. 
Northampton ended up getting into position to tow Hornet at 10.09 a.m. when all of a sudden a lone Val from Shokaku swooped down and dropped a bomb landing 25 yards off the stern of the destroyer Morris. This prompted all the ships around Hornet to cast off for 25 minutes in anticipation for further attacks. Then at 11.30, Northampton returned to Hornet to try and tow her. In the meantime, Murray shifted his flag to the Pensacola at 11.45 a.m., and destroyers began to take on the 75 seriously injured crew of Hornet alongside her 800 other survivors. By 2.50 p.m., Hornet was pulling three knots towed by Northampton when radar was picking up enemy aircraft. It was the Junio's second strike wave, and at 3.20 p.m., they began to make dives at 6,000 feet upon the Hornet. She had no Wildcat cap to defend her. Two Kates targeted Northampton, which cut the tow line and tried to maneuver away frantically. The Hornet's anti-aircraft took out two Kates, but at 3.34, a torpedo dropped at close range struck her starboard side. Commander Crehan recalled this of the moment. A sickly green flash momentarily lighted the scullery compartment and seemed to run both forward towards repair station 5 and aft into the scullery compartment for a distance of 50 feet. This was preceded by a thud so deceptive as to almost make one believe that the torpedo had struck the port side. Immediately following the flash, a hissing sound of the escaping air was heard, followed by a dull, rumbling noise. The deck on the port side seemed to crack open, and a geyser of fuel oil, which quickly reached the depth of two feet, swept all personnel at repair five off their feet and flung them headlong down the sloping decks of the compartment to the starboard side. Floundering around in the fuel oil, all somehow regained their feet, and a hand chain was formed to the two-way ladder and escape shuttle leading from the third deck to the second deck. All managed to escape in some fashion through this scuttle, and presented a sorry appearance upon reaching the hangar deck. The last hit doomed Hornet, and the ship listed 14.5 degrees as her captain ordered abandoned ship. At 3.40, a pair of valves appeared to plant some near misses on the Hornet. It was Zoikaku's third strike of the day. Hornet was hit on her flight deck, adding some more damage. Soon Hornet was reaching an 18 degree list, and by 5.15 p.m., 118 men were dead aboard the Hornet. Admiral Halsey received some scattered reports throughout the day. At 9.49, Hornet hurt. At 1, and retiring southeastward, unable to give Hornet fighter coverage. Then at 2, Hornet in tow, no aircraft. Halsey recognized the situation for what it was, and he ordered a general withdrawal by 3.50 p.m. Accordingly, the Mustin was detailed with scuttling Hornet, while the rest of the task force fled. The Mustin fired eight torpedoes at Hornet, two ran erratically, one blew up prematurely, five hit her, and three of them actually exploded, adding to the ever-apparent issue with the American torpedoes. Hornet refused to sink, so the Anderson came to help bury the Hornet, firing eight torpedoes herself and hitting her six times. Still, Hornet was afloat, and some Japanese floatplanes emerged to the scene, and these were from the advance force. At this point, the vanguard force stood just 12 miles north of Kondo's advance force, and at 6 p.m. he was intending to start a night battle, directing Kakuta to join him. Admiral Ogaki flashed the combined fleet an order at 7.20 p.m. stating they should try to capture and tow Hornet away 
and this led Kondo to turn the advance force due east to meet the task. Kondo detached Admiral Tanaka's destroyer squadron 2 to try and hunt the two destroyers attempting to scuttle Hornet. At 10.15pm, Mustin's radar picked up the incoming threat, but Hornet was still afloat, and she alongside her sister pummeled Hornet with shells. 20 minutes later, destroyers Akigumo and Makikumo arrived and fired two torpedoes which hit Hornet, finally sinking her at 1.35am on October the 27th. After this, Kondo turned back to close in on the fleeing enemy. The forces of Kincaid and Lee were running for Espiritu Santo and Numea, where they ran into Japanese submarine ambush sites. This led to many frantic scrambles to dodge torpedoes, and the Mahan in South Dakota collided as a result, sending the small destroyer back to the dockyards for some repairs. By this point, the fuel situation was critical for the Japanese, and Admiral Yamamoto was forced to order the forces to retire back to truck. The Japanese crew reports for the battle were incoherent and chaotic. Some reported there were four American carriers present at the battle. Carrier staff claimed they sank three enemy carriers alongside a battleship, some cruisers, destroyers, and a submarine. Japanese pilots and anti-aircraft crews claimed they had shot down 79 American aircraft. The Imperial General Headquarters claimed the battle produced the destruction of four American carriers, one battleship, and 200 aircraft. The Japanese suffered no sunk ships, though Zoikaku, Zoyo, and Shikuma would be out of action for many weeks. Aircraft and aircrew losses were severe. They came into battle with 199 carrier planes and lost a total of 97 of them. 148 pilots had died. Many of these men, like Murata and Saiki, could not be easily replaced. They were losing their battle-hardened veteran pilots. The quality of the Japanese carrier pilots were being bled. Over on the American side, they had lost Hornet. Over 81 aircraft and 24 flight crew died, with over 4 POWs. Ship companies suffered 240 deaths. While the American pilots anguished over their performance, the anti-aircraft crews were considerably satisfied with their accomplishments. They had destroyed around half the valves and Kates that attacked them. Gunnery officers noted the heavy 5-inch guns with radar and director systems accounted for perhaps just 5% of the effort, while the new Beaufort 40mm guns demonstrated vast superiority. Admiral Nimitz offered an assessment of the battle several weeks later. Here is part of that. This battle cost us the lives of many galleon men, many planes, and two ships that could ill be spared. Despite the loss of about three carrier air groups and damage to a number of ships, the enemy retired with all his ships. We nevertheless turned back the Japanese again in their offensive to regain Guadalcanal and shatter their carrier air strength on the eve of the critical days of mid-November. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast, Over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube 
where I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it would mean a lot to me. The Battle of Santa Cruz was over. It was an impressive victory for the IGN. However, it was also a Pyrrhic one. The Japanese carrier crews were being bled dry of quality men, and Admiral Yamamoto's hope to win a decisive victory over the enemy was falling apart. Poor Admiral Nagumo was relieved of command and reassigned to shore duty.